The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. You ever had a desire to um, just kind of get a fresh start? Kind of clean the slate? Second chance? Maybe you're thinking about moving away and, okay, fresh start, fresh place. I remember hearing Anthony Campolo tell the story one time of a young man who told him that he was going to be leaving and he was going to sit out across the country. He was leaving from the East Coast and was going to go to California. And Anthony Campolo said, well, why do you want to do that? He was just going to kind of live his journey and sleep where he might find his place to lay his head. And the young man said to Anthony Campolo, because I want to find myself. Anthony Campolo said to him, well, what if you find out you are an onion? You know what happens when you peel away an onion, right? Layer by layer, and you find there's nothing there. Uh, The moral of that story is that the one thing that we can't run from, the one thing we cannot escape is ourself, right? Change of environment. And in the story in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, post-flood, kind of the postscript to the flood, we find that, that what had really taken place was there was a clean slate. God had judged the earth, and the only one that was found righteous in God's eyes were Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wife. And so eight of them, God brought on the ark along with all of the animals. And in the beginning of Rome, of Genesis chapter 8, you can go back and look through that, but they spent about a year, a little over a year on the ark before they were able to embark from the ark again or depart from the ark and the flood had subsided. Clean slate, you might say. But there were three apparent things that were still in existence that we find out very shortly as the story continues was that as, as much as Noah was a righteous man, Noah was not a perfect man. Amen? A little sidebar. There are no perfect people. There's only one. You're never going to be a perfect person, and the one that you are maybe married to, the one that you're in relationship with, the one that you work with, the one that you go to church with, guess what? They're not perfect people either, so get over it, amen? Sin nature was still there. Somebody asked me last week the question, and the question was, did God eradicate the sin nature after the flood? And the answer is no, it's still there. We're going to find out very briefly and. Genesis chapter 9, that it was still there. The other thing that still remained that had been there was that after Noah and his family embarked off of the ark, they still had the same choice that Adam and Eve had in the garden, and that was to either obey God or disobey God. That still remained. The last thing that we see still stood post-flood is that the Word of God and the promises of God were still yes and amen. And so they were left with the same choice, really, in some ways, that, that we are, a critical choice that we all make. And that critical choice is, is that we either include God in our lives 
that we either uh, seek God and obey God and pursue God and rely on His graces and His mercies and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit or as many make the choice to leave God out of their lives. It's been that way since the flood and it will be that way until Jesus comes again. This morning, I want to read the passage. It's a lengthy passage we're going to look at. I want to make some comments as we pick up in verse 20 of chapter 8 and then come back and share with you three things that, that really still exist post-flood that existed before the flood. Father, we pray that you, by the Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts, God, that, Lord, your word would pierce our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God, would you use your word today to encourage us? God, would you use your word today to, to uh, rebuke us if that's necessary, God? Would you use your word to teach us who you are so that we might know you and serve you more? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 20, after Noah and his family come off the ark, the very first thing we find them doing, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. God's promises are yes and amen, right? He says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Some of your translations would say the intention of man's heart is evil from childhood. And I would beg to argue that they had that inclination from the very birth in the cradle. Any young moms in the room this morning? So that had not changed Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the very same thing that he told Adam and Eve. Now, after the flood and all humanity had been wiped out except for Noah and his family, now he gives a command again, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon every thing that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Prior to the flood, we understand that, that man only ate vegetables. And so here now, now God says, I will give you not only the vegetables, but meat. And some of us have chosen to enjoy that for all of this life. Can I get an amen to that? Now, some of you by choice may be vegetarians, and that's okay. That's a conviction that you have that you want to eat that way, but, but God does not prohibit the eating of meat, contrary to what PETA and other organizations may say. I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
for God made man in his own image. And so we, hear, we see this covenant that God had established with Noah, and, and some of us may not agree with the state-sponsored capital punishment, but can I say this? For intentional murder, malice, murder, murder with a motive and intent, God believes in capital punishment. He says, for even the individual that takes, why is it? Because God has reserved the right of life and death for himself and himself only. And so that capital offense of murder, God says, listen, if it takes place, I'll avenge. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply and team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come at, came out from the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. And never shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of you of the covenant between me and the earth. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about the covenants of God. But when God establishes a covenant with his people, God will see that covenant through to the end. And so we can be assured by God's nature and his character that he's true to his word and his covenant. What God has said here will never take place again. And then he says, every time I see my co- the rainbow in the cloud, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow, that is the rainbow, is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Now, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, all of the Canaanites. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth, they were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his younger son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers." And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now I want to drop back in this passage and pull out three key things that I think we need to draw from it to see that this, in this postscript flood, those things that, that still remained the same prior to the flood. And number one is this. We find it in verse 20 of chapter 8, where Noah built an, an altar to God and he worshiped God. And the first point is this, is that worship still pleases God. We see really the first act of worship where God had demonstrated that with Adam and Eve where he slayed the animals and he clothed them. He shed the blood of the animals and he clothed them in animal skins. And we later see it in chapter 4. We see it with Cain and Abel as they made offerings to God. And here after the flood, I find it interesting that the very first thing that Noah and his family did was that they built an altar to God and they worshiped God. Can I say it again that God is still pleasing, it still pleases God that we worship Him. Now, as I talk about this, I want you to shed from your mind that thing that we call worship on Sunday mornings. It is an expression of our worship, but it is only a very small portion or expression of our worship. I think we've done worship or the idea of worship biblically a great disservice when we refer to our service as a worship service. Now, I do that too, but what sets in our minds is that what we do here on Sunday mornings is the only act of worship that God desires. And we bicker and argue about it. Amen? That is only a small part of what it means for us to worship God. That word worship, if you were to take that and really put a literal translation, that the act of worship is that we are giving our worthship to God. We're declaring the great worth of God as best as we can express it, that he's high above the heavens, and we're claiming that. The Westminster Confession that many of us are very familiar with and have heard some of you had it in liturgy and churches that you grew up, but the answer to the question, what is the purpose of man, in Westminster Confession, it says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And from the very first chapter of Genesis to the very last chapter of Revelation, what we find all through God's Word is that He is worthy of our worship and all that we have to lay before Him at His feet and give him honor and to give him glory and submit to that. A few little things I want to say about worship. Number one is this, is all that we should do, all that we do is an act of worship, and it should glorify God. Can I say this, that everything that you and I do is an act of worship. The question is, where is the worship going to, or who is the worship going to? You see, everything that we do is an act of worship. But God calls us that in every single thing that we do, that we are to glorify Him and bring Him glory in it. 
I don't care if you work on an assembly line. I don't care if you work in an office building. I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom working to take care of your kids. I don't care what you are. The Bible says that as followers of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, that everything that we should do should glorify God and give Him worship. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, by the way, this is in context of of eating meat sacrificed to idols and that whole question of conscience there. Paul concludes it by saying this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so can I encourage you this morning that as you're going about your week starting tomorrow through Saturday before you come back in here for corporate worship next week, that everything that you do in the week coming is an act of worship. Every phone call that you make is an act of worship. Every product that you sell is an act of worship. Do you get the idea here? Paul says, listen, whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of of God. So whatever your vocation might be, can I encourage you that it is not insignificant to God? It's not insignificant to the kingdom of God. Everything that you and I do, he says, we should glorify God. The second thing is this, that when I notice what what Noah did here, he he took some of the clean every clean animal, some of the clean birds, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the thing that we find in Scripture is that every act of worship, every act of glorifying God requires a sacrifice to be made on our part. The psalmist said, offer a sacrifice of what? Praise. I don't know about you, sometimes on Sunday morning when I'm expressing, it's a sacrifice to praise Him, right? Because I come in with all kinds of emotions, and maybe the week has gone bad. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not what I would want to hear. Maybe it's not. Maybe somebody said something to me in the hallway coming in that just dashed my idea, and it is a sacrifice to praise God. But he says, everything. Romans chapter twelve, verse one. He says this. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies. When we look at God's mercy and we recognize His mercy towards us, I implore you, he says, I encourage you, I exhort you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of service. And when he says to offer our bodies, he means every part of us, our mind, our hands, every part of our being, that it is a sacrifice to glorify God. You know why it's a sacrifice when we glorify God, when we give God praise, when we we worship Him because our flesh is standing there warning us to indulge for ourselves rather than giving to God. Somebody else contend with that or is it just me? It's a sacrifice. So number two in that, sacrifice is always a part of worship. Number three is that our worship of God, remember taking it out of the context of what we do here on Sunday morning, our worship of God is not based on form or liturgy, or ritual. Now, it can have form, 
It can have liturgy, and it can have ritual, but the sincerity of our worship, whether or not it's a worship that God receives and accepts, is not based on that. God could care less what order of things we worship Him in. Jesus said this. Remember the story in the, with, the, with the Samaritan woman? You see, she wanted to get, engage in an argument with Jesus about where the real place was to worship God. And Jesus said, hey, I'm telling you, there's a time that's coming that, that you'll neither worship him in this place, the temple that, that the Samaritans had built, or in Jerusalem, the temple that God had ordered and commanded to be built. He said this in John 4, 24, but God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't care if we hang from the chandeliers. I don't care if we jump up and holler or run around the aisles. I don't care if we have smoke machines, fog machines. And Zach, no, we're not going to put fog machines on the stage. I don't care if we do it as in some practices where it's all like a cappello. Listen, none of that matters. What matters is that as we engage in the worship of God, that it is spirit, that it's spirit-led, that we're communing with Him by the Holy Spirit, and we are worshiping Him in truth, in a sincere and truthful heart, and based on the truth of His Word, the Word of God. That's all that God cares about. That's all that matters to him. He looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Fourthly is this, that our worship, our our giving worth to God is also manifested horizontally. Remember the great command that Jesus gave that you can sum up all of the law And two commands, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Our loving is worship of God. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. He says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is just one verse to support that point. But as we serve one another, as we love our neighbors, whatever act of service based on the gifting that God has placed in your life, whatever we do in that, it is an act of worship to God. And I would say this, to deny that expression of that gift is to deny an opportunity where we might worship God to use our gifts so that we might serve one another in the body of Christ. It blew me away. I was amazed uh, Friday night. I watched the broadcast on Facebook of the women's catalyst event. So you had a little testosterone infiltrating the women's catalyst event. 
And uh, it was mentioned that, that to put that on, there were some 30 women that were engaged in serving, using their gifts so that that segment of our body might be edified and be able to worship God through his word and song. You see, God has given us gifting so that we might serve one another. A side note, if we ever find ourselves serving ourselves by our gift, it's a red flag to say we are misappropriating and misusing that gift. You see, God has not given us gifts to serve one another so that we might get an ego stroke or so that we might do it just for ourselves. Now, there's pleasure in serving God with our gifts. But first and foremost, it's an act of worship to God. Number five on this area of worship is that, that worship is the fuel and the ultimate goal of our mission and missions. Worship is the fuel of the mission that He has given to us to go and make disciples, to win disciple and sin. Worship is the fuel of this. John Piper made this statement years ago, and it still resonates today. He said, missions exist because worship exists doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You see, the end goal of our mission, the end goal is to, of winning people to Christ, the end goal of making disciples of them and sending them to make other disciples of Christ is that when one comes to know Christ, then they worship Him. And the ultimate goal is that all of humanity would worship God. And God desires that none should perish, but all come to eternal life. And so our goal in that mission is to share the gospel so that others might receive it and be saved and therefore glorify God. Psalm 96 verse 3 says this, Declare His glory, that's an act of worship, declaring His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Isaiah 12, verse 4 says, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And God sent Jesus on his mission, according to Romans 15, 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He does his mighty, everything he's done throughout history has been that his name might be proclaimed to the end of the earth, Romans 9 Verse 17. So to sum that up, God is still pleased with worship. And everything that we do is an act of worship. The second thing that still remained after the flood is this, is that man was still inherently sinful. I read the verse again, 821, the second part of the verse. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. David would later affirm that in Psalm 51, verse 5, where he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And if you're honest this morning, we can all bear witness with our own experience that we are still plagued with sin. Amen? It's still there. That didn't change after the flood. 
Paul would later say in Romans chapter 7, For I know that no good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And Paul described the experience that I think all of us have, and that is there's this law, there's this, there's this war raging in me, the law of the Spirit and the law of the flesh. I know those things that I ought to do, but there's that war that says, no, don't do those. And I know the things that I ought not do, but there's this battle that goes on. And I find myself, Paul says, doing the very things that I ought not to do. Anybody say, amen, that's me, Lord Jesus, help me. And that's what Paul said. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're still plagued with it. Noah and his son Ham, in the text, it shows that it's very evident that sin had not been eradicated from the flood. We read the story that as as Noah had become a vine dresser, he had become one who grew vines of grapes, and he became a winemaker, that, that Noah indulged to the point of being drunk. Now, Noah's sin was not the wine. The sin that Noah committed was that he had become drunk on the wine and he had lost control, contrary to what what Paul says in Ephesians, that not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit of God. And so the sin was drunkenness, not the vine. And here we find that Noah is in a stupor state as he's become out of control because of the wine that he had indulged himself in. Ham, however, walks in, and it's interesting that Ham looked upon his father, and he came out and told his brothers. Now, the text doesn't tell us why Noah was so irritated about this. It wasn't just the fact that that Ham had seen Noah in a naked state. But when you look at the Hebrew that's translated there, for he had looked upon him... It gives the idea and the implication that he gazed delightfully and he desired. Now, it's interesting when you trace. Now, notice the the, the curse wasn't that Noah pronounced. The curse was not on Ham, but it was on his son, Canaan, the firstborn. And when you look forward in history of the Canaanites, the two things that the Canaanites were known for, the two things that God, when he sent Joshua into the land some 400 years later to to conquer all of the ites that were there, the Amorites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and all the other, that the two things that marked their lifestyle and their living was idolatry and immorality. And so it gives us some idea. Listen, Ham had that propensity towards it. We all have a propensity towards something, right? We all know our weaknesses. And we know that we all have propensity to certain sins. Look at the person around you and say, I know you have a propensity and I have a propensity. So let's get over it. Let's quit judging each other. You know yours, but you're very likely are not going to share it with your neighbor. But we all have propensities. Thank God for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. 
where He has given us the power that we can overcome, have victory over those propensities that we might have. You see, man's sinful nature had not changed. Somebody wrote this one time, and I can't remember who it was to quote him, but it was something like this, that if you take a train robber and and you send him to Harvard, what do you get when he graduates from Harvard? You get an educated thief. Can I propose to you that rehabilitation is not what we need? What we need is transformation. Where we're born again and the Spirit of God gives us a new nature, a new creation. We are new creations in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. Unfortunately, some Christians fall into the trap where they still try to do behavior modification. We get saved and somebody gives us a list of things that we're not supposed to do and a list of things that we are supposed to do and we try to condition ourselves just to follow that list. Can I tell you, that's bondage. We're free in in Christ and where the Spirit of God has set us free, we are free indeed and allow the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and work in our hearts. You see, man was still left with a will to choose. Sin would still bear out its consequences. Now, God had made the promise that he would never again destroy the earth with water, the entire earth with water. We've had localized flooding, and we have localized flooding somewhere around the world every year, a number of times. But there has not been, nor will there ever be again, an instance where the whole earth is flooded. But there is, we spoke of a couple of weeks ago, another judgment of God that is coming. This judgment came after 120 years of warning. The next one that's coming has has been a lot longer, but just as God had pronounced and said there's a judgment coming, we know that there's a judgment coming again. The next time it won't be by water, it will be by fire. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21, I'd encourage you to go read those two references, that at that time God will destroy all of the earth and all of the heavens by fire and all of the, uh, the heavenly beings will be consumed by fire. And after that, praise God, Revelation chapter 21, He will create a new heaven and a new earth where there no longer will be any weeping, there will no longer be any sorrow, that all of our tears will be wiped away. I'm concerned about COVID. I'm concerned that I possibly could catch it and lose my life. And many of us know loved ones and family members who have. And it's sorrowful on this end. But the hope that we have, the hope that we have to look forward to, that this is not all there is to life. But God's promise is that he's going to wipe all this away. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where no longer we will weep over a loved one who has been lost due to some disease. 
where no longer there'll be any strife because in that eradication, every single trace of sin, which is corporate to all of this messed up world, will be done away with. Amen? Thank you. Go ahead. We need to praise Him. That's where our hope lies. Lastly is this. God establishes a a normal cycle of life. And I believe this is in God's grace and His mercy. When we think of the magnitude of the flood and all the chaos and the devastation that took place during the flood, that God has provided some normal cycles of life, and they are God's signs to us of Him keeping His Word and His covenant. Verse 22. He proclaimed, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We don't typically think about it in our location, in our climate. I mean, we have some mild winter, right? But, but generally, where we are located, there, there are not a, there's not a lot of chaotic activity happening. There, there are not extremes that are extremely hostile. I like watching the survival shows. Anybody watch those? And they drop the guys from a helicopter. It's on, the same, it's on at the same time Hallmark's on, so you're at the other TV on this one. But in most parts of the world, we, we live in a, an extremely hostile environment. And if we're dropped there, just left to our own vices, it's almost impossible to survive. But God, in His mercy, has, has created establish these seasons and cycles that that keep us relatively out of harm's way from the chaotic, hostile world that we live in. Again, you can go to the websites that I recommended last week, Institution of Creation Research and the Genesis Project, etc. But but we understand now after the flood, that protective canopy that had enveloped the earth was now gone. It provided some filter from the ultraviolet rays from the sun. And now that that's gone, we are subject to that. And the promotion of free radicals, you've heard that term, go rampant in that environment. (laughs) You ever think about this? This is edifying. I just want to share it with you. You realize from the moment you're born, you are dying Oh, glory to God, I was edified this morning at church. (laughs) I'm dying. Scientists believe that even the the tilt of the earth, which is tilted at 23 and a half degrees, that it was most likely, most probable, that was a result of a worldwide flood. That's why we have the extremes in our environment that we do from the north to the south and Extreme heat at the equator, etc. 
But God in all of that has, has provided these seasons and these, these things that change. One of the dramatic things that changed that before is every indication that Adam and Eve had, had great harmony with all of the animals in the garden, but after the flood, and evidently there was still harmony because they got along with Noah and his family for a year, right? But he says here, after the flood, that there will be enmity. There'll, there'll be conflict between all living things. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. So now the animal kingdom, and we see it, don't we? The animal kingdom is at odds. I mean, in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't seem to have a problem with the upright serpent. But today, you see a snake on the ground, and to you, every snake's a cobra, and you're going to kill everyone you see, right? Outside of a couple of our domesticated animals, primarily cats, which there are some of them that are still hostile, right? And dogs, some of them are precious to us. I didn't have a picture of my grandkids, so I threw that out there. (laughs) Look at this chaotic world. God's given us this this time that, that we look at. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it shall not cease. God's given us the seasons of time, and it's a reminder to us of of God's promise that while there, yes, there are changes in the climate, there are changes in the season, until God says it's over, it ain't over, baby. I wonder if, if maybe the writer and Jenny and Abby, I had no idea you were doing that song this morning. But, but in, the, in the verse on great is thy faithfulness, I, I love, I've got this one taped in the front of my Bible. He reminds us that the author does of this great hymn, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, your mercies are new. All I have needed, God, your hand has provided. He still loves our worship. We, We consider the rainbow that he gave as a symbol of his covenant. Unfortunately, some segments of society culture have taken that and it is disturbing. But every time that God sees that rainbow, 
Yes, it's a reminder to us, but God says here in chapter 9 that every time he sees it, he remembers the covenant that he made with you and me. Amen. God is a covenant-keeping God. This last week we had, many of you saw it, I saw on your Facebook page, different counties, we had this huge rainbow. And Dave, David snapped a couple of pictures of it here at the church. And, and look at the next one. Look at that. Folks, just as God made a promise to Noah to keep his covenant, God has made a promise to you and to me to keep his covenant. That when we entered into a relationship with the living God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he said that that is a new covenant and I have sealed it in my blood. Thank him this morning for that covenant. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.